So, you know, I play guitar just a little bit every day, a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Sometimes I play along with a song that comes up on my uh, iTunes or album that I'm playing or something. I play drums. I was trained as a drummer in the uh, early days, fifth grade and on. Played that for a long time. Couldn't read the music and all that. I don't really read uh, other music. On a piano keyboard, I can find the C note and find chords because I know chords a little bit. Uh, played in a number of bands in my teens and 20s and 30s, but uh, since then, it's only been, you know, a couple of jam sessions a year, if I can get it. No real commitment. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Beatle, and I decided there was no job openings there. I wanted to be in a band. And then, as I decided uh, along the way that maybe being a band wasn't the greatest thing because, you know, I, I realized when I was in my 20s that to do that, and I did that a lot, uh, to, to make a career out of it, hauling your drums in and out of a, a smoky bar at two in the morning was not something that I really wanted to do all that much. So I was in radio and that radio was where my career was. But uh, I, I've had this vision of uh, having this nice studio where I can sit and play and record for hours a day. But frankly, I'm a, a long way from that vision becoming a reality. Although I do have a, a, a software and, and some microphones and stuff and I do play with it a little bit. I'm just envisioning a really nice studio. So I do what I can given the time that I have. I plunk my guitar a few times a day. I uh, write a few lyrics. I capture some chord structures and sequences. I mess with my drums. So I got this catalog of song ideas, uh, several completed songs, and even a few that I think are okay and I like a bit because that's kind of the process of, of uh, songwriting. You just kind of learn it as you go. I've concluded that over time, doing a little bit a day really adds up. It's all part of the process. I mean, look at my blog. I blog two, three, four times a week. I've been doing that for 10 years. This month is an anniversary, 10-year anniversary. I have like over 800 posts up, I think. Uh, I walk the dog every day for a mile, a mile and a half a day. That adds up. I try and ride my bike five to 10 miles a day on good weather days. I'm not a rain rider, and there's a fair amount of rain in Oregon. But summer and fall and spring in Oregon are very nice. Uh, so it all adds up over time, and I think doing a little bit every day is a very good thing. Hey, good day to you. This is Tim Patterson, Trade Show Guy, and this is the Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee. So glad you could uh, join me here. i got a fun guest that I think you'll like, especially if you've ever considered or have done any international exhibiting. Larry Culturewick has a book out. We'll talk about it. Trade shows uh, from one country to the next, and we'll get into that on the interview. I think you'll like this. I'd like to welcome to Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee, Larry Kulchewick, who has authored a book called Trade Shows from One Country to the Next. It's a really neat book. Larry, we'll talk about this. But first, I'm, uh, welcome to the show. I appreciate you spending some time with me. Thank you very much. No. Well, welcome to Parker, Colorado. <laughs> Many people ask, why did you move there? And my answer is there are 300 days of sunshine here. Uh-huh. I love it. It makes yeah. me feel rejuvenated waking up each day. I would bet. I would bet. So you've been in the trade show world for many decades. I hate to start counting the number of I've been in the, and you've been in there longer. So tell me about your history just a little bit. Uh, we don't need like the war and peace version, but just kind of a, a brief synopsis. You know, like most of us, we all fumble into this industry. And 45 years ago, I went to school at Southern Illinois University and studied, studying under a guy named Buckminster Fuller. I don't know if you're oh, yeah. I've heard of him. Look him up. <laughs> Bucky Fuller, and one of his great books was uh, Spaceship Earth. Yes. And we would build geodesic domes and did all these things. And after I graduated, I said, now, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I, I, I'm building geodesic domes. How am I ever going to get a job? 
So lo and behold, I fumbled into an, an exhibit design company, hmm. Virtus Display, and uh, you're a designer. And the one thing they asked, and this was in the 70s, that you keep a beard and wear a turtleneck. <laughs> and it made you look like you were a, de a real designer. And that always left an impression on me. I never did stick with that. But in any case, started as an exhibit designer and then worked my way through uh, three of the best biggest exhibit companies in the United States. Uh, Greyhound was the uh, exhibit group was the name of the, the company owned by the Greyhound Corporation at the time. We were called the Greyhound Exhibit Group and we used to get a call once a day, what time's the bus leave? So they changed the, the name to plain old exhibit group. And I was right. there for 27 years. I yeah. became president, uh, got involved in sales uh, and drifted away from my design background. The, uh, then went to Dursey Exhibits, another big company out of big company, yeah. Started yeah. the uh, Chicago division, which is really uh, was a great experience. Bill Haney, the owner, was a tremendous guy. Uh, and then after that, went on to uh, 3D Exhibits to get involved with International uh, in, in, their, in their company. So three big companies, and my wife has always said to me, why don't you start... Uh, or I always said it, why don't I start my own company? And she says, you're not ever going to put our house up for collateral. <laughs> so that ended that and yeah. became an employee. And as I look back, there's no way I don't, I think I would have gone the path I've taken if I was owning a company. Yeah. It takes so much away from your everyday. It's a, just a different world. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So fortunately, and thanks to them and they, uh, in my book, really give them a lot of credit for allowing me to go out and do what I did uh, and really in the international arena. Well, let's talk about that because the book is trade shows from one country to the next. I'm looking at the contents and you've got 47 chapters, each one listing a country. Uh, so, I mean, exhibiting in a couple of countries is daunting to one or two people, uh, to, to most people, I'm guessing. But but if you're going to go to 47 countries and you've taken notes on all those countries. So uh, this is the second edition. Tell me how the book came about and how long it's been out. Well, I, I, I became uh, the first president of IFAS, the first international uh, American president. I shouldn't say first president. And in doing so, they really viewed me kind of Trumpish. <laughs> and, and after three years, it was not that way. But in the process of being president, I got to meet owners of exhibit companies from all over the world who not only became acquaintances, but became good partners. And after my term, and I still am somewhat involved with IFAS, I asked each and every one of them, tell me, when I come to your country, how should I act? What are some of the things I really should be concerned about in exhibiting in your country? And believe it or not, within a week, every one of them responded, which is amazing that, and I think a lot had to do with the relationship and friendship we developed that they felt uh, compelled and probably proud to, to, to share their point of view. So their points of view are what are the basis of each and every country. I'm not the expert in the world. Nobody is. And anybody yeah. says they are, they're lying. Uh, and there's no way you can be the expert everywhere through the world. But you got to trust people and create partnerships that you feel they're telling you like it is and follow their, their lead. And they become your seeing eye dog, which I think is the, uh, some, somewhat the magic formula here at, at this stage in 
all of our careers at internationally. Right. Well, I'm just looking at some of the chapters, like in, in chapter five, doing trade shows in France, you talk about their culture and history and language. And, and then you also talk in some other places about best dining and, and how to find things. And so it's, it's a book of experiences as well as a, kind of a, a guidebook. So what's the first thing you tell a newbie uh, when they want to exhibit outside of the USA? Uh, they, they, it's, it's, a, it's a new world. I mean, literally. Absolutely. You know, what prompted me in part to write the book, when I worked for Exhibit Group, we helped uh, Motorola, uh, General Motors, some big companies. And they would, at that time, in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of a novelty to be doing uh, an American company going overseas. And they would ask me questions like, how long is it going to take to get from the airport to the hotel? How much should I tip? What's the currency? uh, and I, I have to stop them to say, you know, I'm, I understand why you're thinking and worrying about this, but that's not what you should be worrying about. Your, your concern should be, how am I going to engage with that audience? Yeah. You're going to Rio de Janeiro for a show. How do I engage with a Brazilian? How do I talk to them? How do they, how do they want me to, so I fit in. That's really uh, part of the reason why I did the second edition is to focus more on those cultural differences when going overseas. Not so much for us as exhibit designer builders, but for our customers. Yeah. And that was my kind of my next question. How does, how much does a country's culture impact uh, international trade show audience? Uh, Obviously if you're from America, you're speaking English, you could be in any country. Uh, What kind of things uh, do the culture play into that? Well, you know, many times people ask of all countries, which are the most difficult to work in? And number one is USA. We in America have this attitude, and it's not our fault. Uh, when I was president of IFAS, we would sit around once a year for a meeting, and one representative from 35 countries would sit around the table. The Brazilian would sit next to the Portuguese guy, would sit next to the Spanish guy, sit next to the German guy. Each one sat next to a country that spoke somewhat their language, because the official language of business, fortunately for us, is English. And all of our meetings at IFAS are in English. So as the meeting progressed, they would have been, I have to stop from time to time. They'd poke the guy next to him and say, what did he mean by that? What's he, what, what does that mean, cool? Does he mean he's cold? No. And it's that kind of dialogue that English, although it's English, is not really the, uh, all words don't mean the same everywhere. So in getting involved in part of why I wrote the, wrote the book was to point out some of these differences. Yes, the book's written in English. Yes, I'm an American and I can't help my, my prejudices, my attitude. And I shouldn't apologize that, but but I should fully be aware of what, uh, how different I am. And the reason I said earlier about what is the most difficult country to deal with, it's the USA. Not only our unions and our standards of uh, building, uh, we have this one-third depth rule in the United States. We have drayage, a very dirty word, than the rest of the world. <laughs> And there are so many things that are different about doing trade shows in the United States that it becomes more uh, uh, very difficult for world companies to come here and play at 
our rules. And yet you see them all the time. I, I go to, a, for instance, a Natural Products Expo West, big show in Anaheim every March. Yeah. And there are companies from Europe. There are companies from China, Japan. So, so they do come and, and come to those shows. And so they've figured out that it's, that it's valuable enough. So that kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, what advantages do you get to exhibiting overseas? I mean, opening new markets obviously would be one of them. But what kind of things should companies consider before jumping into the international world of trade show marketing if they've never done it? Well, obviously, if a company decides to exhibit internationally, their company internally has checked out all of the opportunities and the issues, taxes, right. sure. uh, representatives, who's representing us there, uh, all those things. And now you begin to sell your product and value uh, at the show. But a consideration, and again, back to why I even wrote the book, you have to be aware of their differences uh, and, more importantly, our similarities. But what are those things that really are hot buttons for that particular country? Uh, maybe in the way you talk, if you go to Asia, there's no hugging. In, in the U.S., we're quick to introduce somebody, and you're giving them a hug. I don't All know right. you. I'm hugging you. Yeah. In Asia, that's a... a Absolute no-no. Uh, also, the art of bowing and uh, nodding your head. Be aware of that. I'm not yeah. saying that you need, you're only going there for five days. You're not going there to live, but you do have to be respectful of that audience. And in doing so, these are the things that newbies need to be uh, aware of and thoughtful and in order to succeed. You can have the greatest product in the world, but if they don't like you because of the way you you engaged, uh, maybe the deal's off. That's, that's really, that's uh, a very sensitive area. Yeah. So what are some of the easiest countries to exhibit in for someone from the U.S. that's never done it before? Are there some that are just kind of like the easiest ones? Europe. Uh, I think Germany is uh, generally. And, and here again, these are countries, Netherlands, Germany, they speak English. And part of that uh, barrier is broken by virtue of of language. I know you go to Spain or France, English and Italy, it's not as common. And you really need that CNI dog more than you ever thought, yeah. <laughs> especially for setting up the exhibit and such. So some countries are, are just, you fall right into the Netherlands, I find to be one of the most uh, easy, uh, and Germany. Uh, as you go to Australia, it becomes similar. Here are so many miles away, and here there are so many similarities. Right. Uh, are, are, there, are there countries where it, it is advised to take a translator or hire a translator? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, especially for the exhibitor. Uh, you're to uh, uh, France, Italy. Uh, gosh, a translator, uh, definitely a, a representative from your country would be the best first step from Brazil, uh, obviously Asia, but uh, definitely I think a, a translator is, is a courtesy to the buyer uh, and, and it should be well informed about your product and services and not just a receptionist. That's a big mistake a lot of people make. So we talked about some of the easiest ones. What, what are some of the city, what city locations are the most difficult to adjust to? Well, uh, Asia can be. And if I, I'm an international person listening to this podcast coming to the U.S., uh, and you really need a good CNI dog here. And my point back to that is you don't have to like it, but you definitely need to respect it, what's yeah. different. 
uh, and stop uh, comparing what you did or what works in my country to why don't you do it this way. In time, we'll, we will correct this thing called drayage. <laughs> it's, well, hopefully. it's the way we do it. So until that time that it changes, let's not talk about it. All I can do is to help you make it cheaper, make it easier, less painful, but it's not going to go away. So then why are we wasting all this time? And I believe me, I have that conversation all the time with my international buyers that are questioning unions and drayage and why do you do it this way? Yeah. You know, America is often seen as, uh, especially overseas, as kind of an arrogant country in in a sense. And so when Americans go to other countries, uh, you really got to hold that in check. You got to be self-aware, as you mentioned, you got to have respect. Do you see that a lot of people don't do that? I'm just curious from your perspective, what kind of things can people get into if they do act like they know it all? Yeah. You don't speak English. You don't have a hamburger. <laughs> no hamburgers. Uh, that is so, uh, I don't know, short-sighted, naive. Yeah, I agree. And in time, uh, Tim, in, in five years, nobody's going to need my book. Right now, I think it's of value to someone for the first time going somewhere. But over time, in fact, if the Brazilian market is a powerful one for your company, you're going to learn their ways. You're going to yeah. be adjusted. You don't need me to tell you how to act within that. But right now, there are so many, the, the expression, you don't know what you don't know, drives my wife nuts. <laughs> She's like, what does that mean? But it makes a lot of sense. So, you, know, you go with certain expectations and uh, they're not meeting your, your expectations. So therefore they're wrong. No, you just understand what's, what's truly different and have that seeing eye dog with you. And and in time you won't need the seeing eye dog either, but for right now it's being aware and respectful. I think those two words. Well, you sent me just a couple of questions, and before we wrap it up, I want to get to this one. I thought it was an interesting question you, you threw out. What are a couple of the greatest challenges that you faced when executing an international trade show for a U.S. customer? Well, over the, the many years I was involved with international, I, I've made some stupid errors, only through ignorance. Uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, very big when I, when I lived in Chicago, we represented them throughout the United States. And they introduced this thing called Globex. It was the first electronic trading in the world. And it was being introduced in London at a hotel. Now, they had this beautiful exhibit that we built in the United States full of electronics and gadgetry and whatever. And he said, we like this exhibit so much, we want to ship it to London. So I shipped it to London. Lo and behold, it's on the second floor of a hotel. It won't fit in the elevator. There's nobody there to help me. I had three guys. So there were a number of things that why didn't I should have asked somebody that was familiar with that venue about what I'm going to be confronted with. Number one, they couldn't accept crates. Of course, we in the United States ship everything with a crate. Yeah. Cut the exhibit in half in order to fit it in the elevator. And then the electronics, electric, uh, didn't didn't jive, didn't work. So my point is sometimes you, you don't know what you don't know. So do your best to find out what you don't know. It, it sounds like a lot of homework and, and it sounds like this would really, really help on that homework. Larry, it's a pleasure yeah. talking to you. So where can people find you and where can they find uh, one trade shows from one country to the next? What's the easiest way to get a hold of this? Well, uh, in two weeks, I'm speaking at the, uh, the EDPA convention on uh, on my book, but on the topic, it's on an international panel. 
And if anybody's going to the EDPA convention, Naples, Florida, nice place to be in the wintertime. Yes. Um, I'd be happy to give you a book and autograph it. You know, I'll never get rich selling books. No, none of us do. But I'm passionate about the concept of what I've fumbled into. And I'll leave you with this. You know, we are part of a $100 billion industry, rated number 22 in contribution to the gross national product in the United States. Yet not one person went to school to learn to do it. We all fumbled into it in one form or the other, some kind of, yeah, of course. And if I, you ask anybody, they're lying. That now this has changed. Twelve years ago, when I was president of EDPA, we in a group started the very first master's degree in exhibit design at FIT in New York City. It's in its twelfth year, and I'm so proud of the developments of what's taking place there that truly they are going to school to learn to do what we do. Yeah. Now I shouldn't say that because we didn't go to school that, that we're novices got, we all brought some discipline from whatever we got our degrees in and applied it to trade show marketing and did a pretty darn good job, especially yeah. designers, yeah. architects, interior designers, whatever their discipline was, but they've done a tremendous job in applying their disciplines to. Now you see more programs in colleges to, to, to bring people into the industry, kind of like sales. I mean, sales, people usually don't get training for sales unless they find it themselves. You don't really go to school to become a salesman and yet nothing happens until something gets sold. So that's an interesting skill that, that is very important in the world. So, you know, salesmen are, some people say you're, you, they're natural. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, we work hard too. So. And they're, and they're the most difficult people. Uh, for me to say no to, <laughs> you know, one salesman talking to another, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm easily sold because I'm uh, yeah. open mind to what's what's correct. Yeah, it, it, right, it's, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Any last words? Well, uh, other than I'd like you to have a look at my book, uh, yeah. and the theme of the book is there's no right way, there's no wrong way, there's only a different way. Know and respect what's different, and you're you're on your way to success. Well, There's this is, a magic formula. This is a great resource, and Larry, I appreciate you sharing with it here on the Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee. Uh, thanks again for your time, Tim. Enjoy California or Oregon. That's where you're at. Say I'm in Oregon. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks. West Coast. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much. Thanks again to Larry uh, for spending time with me on this week's show. Really appreciate it. That was a uh, fun, and I learned a lot. Uh, enter- entertaining educational uh, podcast interview because I've never exhibited overseas. I've seen a lot of people that have, but I've, I've never done it myself, never been involved. So it's kind of uh, fun to pick the brains of someone who has. Thanks, Larry. Uh, trade show tip of the week. Uh, when it comes to trade show booths, exhibits, it's all in the design. It's kind of a short tip. 3D design is how you express your company's brand, your company's message. Design is not everything, but boy, it is a big part and it all starts there. So next time you're at a trade show and you're thinking to yourself, you know, a year from now, I'd like to have a really nice booth that matches our company's image. Walk the floor, keep your phone handy for taking pictures, look for exhibits that really capture the essence of that brand and maybe go ask who did it, who designed it. Uh, not a lot of exhibits do it extraordinarily well. A lot of them do it pretty well. 
many are average, uh, you know, but do they really represent the brand or the message the company is trying to communicate? That's often what happens as time goes by, in my experience. You've got a, an exhibit that that's pretty good that over time you've added this and that and taken things out. And, and by the time three to four to five years have gone by, it's time for a, either a refresh or a tear down and let's start over again because it just doesn't communicate your brand anymore. So uh, when a 3D exhibit designer, a good one really pulls it off, though, it's it's really special. All right, let's wrap it up with this week's One Good Thing. I went to see the uh, new movie about Queen called Bohemian Rhapsody and loved it. Being an old classic rocker myself, I did see Queen once in the old days. I was actually looking for the ticket stub, but I haven't found it. I, uh, Thin Lizzy opened up. I was a big Thin Lizzy fan, and I was kind of a Queen fan, and I went to see the show uh, in Portland probably in the mid to late 70s, and they were on tour together. Uh, Thin Lizzy was great, and then Queen came on and, and, and knocked everybody dead. They were, they were really fun. <laughs> and, uh, the movie is not literal uh, in the sense that everything that you see in the movie happened. Uh, they've taken various characters, put them together. They've invented a couple of things. A lot of it uh, is very accurate, though. And of course, if you like the music of Queen, you'll love it because the centerpiece of the movie is the appearance they made in 1985 at Live Aid, which has gone down in history as the act at Live Aid that really stole everything. Uh, so <laughs> they stole the show. And so after I watched the movie, I went and pulled up the actual performance of Queen on YouTube at Live Aid. And the, the movie really nailed it. And uh, Rami uh, Malik, I guess, is the guy that plays Freddie Mercury, which is what the main story is about, just, just was, was great. A terrific job. Uh, so go see it uh, if you're at all into Queen or classic rock. Bohemian Rhapsody this week's one good thing. It's Trade Show Guy. Monday morning coffee. Have yourself a great week. <laughs>